Hi everyone. Welcome to meet, meeting number 14 um, of the M2D2 series. Um, we have the pleasure today to, uh, to have Mark with us. He will be presenting his work on epistemic uncertainty estimation for efficient search uh, of drug. So before we start a bit about the speaker, uh, Mosh is a graduate student at Milan and the University of Montreal working under the supervision of Professor Joshua Vendio. Uh, he has his bachelor degree from antique um, Surap, Surap Kal. I'm sorry if I'm pronouncing that uh, badly, sorry for that. Um, he's interested in, in developing deep learning method for sequential decision-making and the application for scientific discovery. Before joining Mila, he works um, at Microsoft on research efficient machine learning methods. And it's a pleasure to have Mark Rivers today. Uh, the floor is yours, Mark. You can, yeah, how do you like to handle questions? You can precise that and then jump into our talk. Yeah, so uh, yeah, first of all, yeah, thank you for the invitation to speak here. Uh, it's a, a pleasure to speak here. And uh, uh, also thank you everyone for joining the talk. Uh, so like, yeah, just uh, briefly about the questions. If you have any questions, please feel free to like raise your hand uh, so that we can take the question right away. Or if it is something you want to discuss in detail, please feel free to leave it in the chat. And like towards the end, we will have some time to discuss questions and we can take more details questions then. Uh, so, yeah, so uh, today I'll be talking about some of our recent work on uh, epistemic uncertainty estimation in neural networks and how we can use it for improving the efficiency of search for novel candidates for drugs or like, I mean, several other applications. Um, yeah, so to begin with, uh, let's talk about the process of scientific discovery in general. So we essentially uh, have like a very, let's say, imperfect uh, model of the world, uh, which we sort of uh, rely on uh, uh, during uh, our like during our day to day interactions with the world. Now, if we want to really discover uh, or understand the real world, uh, the process is generally follows this uh, particular uh, uh, flow, right? So we come up with some interesting questions uh, that we can ask about the world. Uh, now, these can be very complicated questions, uh, like let's say, what are the laws governing uh, how objects move or how objects interact? Or it can be something even uh, much simpler than like, what's the time right now? Or like how, the very basic questions. Um, now, uh, we tend to form these questions uh, into experiments that we can actually conduct in the real world. So, uh, for example, to test the laws which govern the interaction of objects, we can like actually see how two objects interact. We can have empirical evidence for that and so on. Uh, so we observe some results from the environment based on our experiments. So once you perform some experiment, we observe some results. And then finally, we sort of incorporate this knowledge to get a better model of the world, right? Um, so uh, now we want to focus more on this particular question, which is where uh, we believe uh, deep learning and uh, machine learning can sort of help us. Um, so now what are the sort of questions that we want to ask? So uh, the questions that we want to ask can sort of be uh, separated based on what our objective is in the end, right? So we can have two sorts of objectives. One will be, one would be we can, we want to sort of obtain a better understanding of the world. 
so that uh, thing uh, that is more about like let's say discovering laws governing the world or like how objects interact and so on and the second one would be how do we design objects with certain properties so for example we like let's say we don't really care that much about understanding the underlying uh, dynamics of the world but we just want to let's say get this one particular object which can sort of satisfy some properties which we are looking for uh, but just to note that these two are not necessarily mutually uh, exclusive so for example you, you you might not be able to design a better object uh, without sort of knowing much about the world <clears throat> So when we are trying to get a better model of the world, uh, we want to sort of uh, ask questions which will uh, reveal something which we sort of previously did not know about the world, right? So um, uh, uh, like something which will reduce uh, the uncertainty that we have about the nature of the world. Uh, or in other words, you can say we want to maximize the information gain, gain about the parameters of the world. So whatever parameters govern the world, we want to sort of maximize the information that we gain about them. Um, uh, or the uh, the next one, which might which is probably more interesting uh, for us, is how do we uh, use this knowledge, or like how do even without this knowledge, how do we sort of uh, design new things which will sort of have certain properties? So here, uh, we don't necessarily want to just uh, like rely on our like imperfect model of the world. We rather want to uh, incorporate some. Uh, limitations of what we do not know about the world, right? So we might like really just know about a very specific thing, but it, the knowledge doesn't really translate uh, like to some other things which we do not know about. Uh, I'm being a bit abstract right now, but uh, we'll make this a bit more concrete going forward. Uh, but yeah, so the goal here is we want to uh, maximize the potential value rather than just try to find some uh, like try to sort of uh, base it on just our model of the world. So, uh, so yeah, now coming to the actual problem of drug discovery, right? So here the goal is we want to uh, discover new drugs, which can, let's say, inhibit a particular target or inhibit a particular bacteria, or it can sort of bind to a particular target. Um, and the main, really the, the key part here is we want to find something which is um, like already not been discovered, right? And uh, it, it is uh, satisfying certain criteria which we have. Um, uh, so as you can see, like, so this is a very toy childish example for the drug discovery processes. We have a few, uh, molecules that we sort of, let's say, know about, and let's say the y-axis is some, uh, property of interest. So for example, let's say binding energy, uh, of with like, uh, binding affinity to a certain, uh, target ligand. Um, uh, we can, uh, uh, see that like we do have like some information about this let's say uh, one of these maxima of this particular function, but we just don't have any information about this particular, uh, uh, the other maxima of this uh, uh, property of interest. Uh, so the, the issue here is if we really just base our, uh, um, uh, base our future experiments on this model itself, uh, we, we would be missing out on this particular uh, maxima, right? So ideally we want something which is able to uh, incorporate this potential value that we are missing out on. So more specifically, the reason why we might want to do this is also because when we are uh, in let's say a drug discovery setting, like running these experiments is very expensive uh, and we need to rely on some computational methods to even suggest these candidates because we can't really like directly optimize the wet lab experiments. 
So uh, when we are sort of working uh, with like some approximation of the world, we need to sort of uh, think about uh, how the model can go wrong. And more specifically, uh, the message here is that like the models can be imperfect, but knowing where they are imperfect can help uh, us in sort of guiding our discovery process and our search process. Um, uh, and like the a very popular framework to sort of uh, think about this um, uh, problem is this is that of like sequential model based optimization. Uh, now uh, uh, it, it it encompasses like a lot of problems and generally it's just a problem to it's just a framework to model problems where you have like a sequential process of sort of generating and collecting data uh, and uh, it. <clears throat> Sorry. Uh, so yeah, so the goal is uh, essentially we want to sort of generate a data which can uh, satisfy some particular criteria. So for example, it could be like maximizing a certain property and so on, but roughly it goes like this. So we start with some initial knowledge of the world, which is encoded in this data set B. Uh, and uh, we can, uh, then we have this loop of first we like have some policy which acts based on the knowledge of the world so this could be generating new uh, targets right and then we uh, uh, run this experiment in the real world so we will have some observation and then we can incorporate this new uh, uh, new observations into our like existing data set and we just repeat so then uh, the key part here is this part where we use the knowledge we already have to come up with new experiments now a very popular uh, instantiation of this framework is that of uh, Bayesian optimization. Um, uh, uh, so Bayesian optimization is just an instantiation of this uh, sequential model based optimization framework where we rely on, on a Bayesian, Bayesian model for uh, getting uh, uh, for generating the next candidates and also sort of modeling the uh, objective function that we're trying to maximize. Um, uh, so, by the way, uh, I won't be going a lot into detail about Bayesian optimization, but if you're interested, there was a fantastic talk at the M2D2 seminar by Aryan Deshwal, so you should definitely check that out. Um, now, so coming to the question of, uh, so, okay, the, uh, like in Bayesian optimization, uh, really what we rely on is we rely on the uncertainty estimates from uh, this Bayesian model of our world. Uh, now, so that brings us to the question, what really is uncertainty? So um, like, okay, going by the definition of Wikipedia, it's like a lack of uncertainty. It's a lack of certainty, uh, <laughs> or uh, you can say a state of limited knowledge. So really what this means is uh, that we lack some knowledge about the world, which sort of uh, is, that's it. So it's just something which we lack about, like some information that we lack about the world. It's can be referred to as uncertainty, but more formally, uh, we can really distinguish this uncertainty into two very fundamental, fundamentally different quantities. So one is this, what we call the aleatoric uncertainty. So the aleatoric uncertainty is something which is a property of the environment or like a property of the world that we live in. Uh, and it is something which is irreducible. So it's, let's say you can think of it as something which is inevitable uh, in the data collection process. So um, what like so there can be several things which leads to it, uh, aleatoric uncertainty. So for example, if you consider uh, some uh, real world experiment, uh, you can have the instruments which you use for measurement will have some amount of uncertainty associated to them, which is basically the uh, which is basically their error tolerance. So for example, if you are using a ruler 
your ruler will have like marks of like one millimeter each. Uh, you cannot, you you just cannot like you physically cannot like go below that particular uh, one millimeter threshold using the same instrument. So you can come up with like more and more powerful instruments. Uh, but at a point you reach the, some fundamental limits of the world, like the Heisenberg uncertainty principle. So at its core, like you might, there will always be some uncertainty in the world. Uh, another instance to think about aleatoric uncertainty is, let's say, uh, if you're thinking about some image classification task. Uh, now, like image classification generally relies on humans who sort of uh, label that particular image, right? So uh, if we all agree on a particular label, then the label is set. But there can be instances where someone like there can be disagreement among the human judges itself on what particular what a particular image is. So that also is an instance of aleatoric uncertainty. Um, uh, so yeah, it is a property inherent to the environment. It is inherent to the data, and that's what uh, uh, is aleatoric uncertainty. But there is another aspect is, which is depends really on the choice of our model, right? So uh, this is the epistemic uncertainty. The epistemic uncertainty is uh, it's a, a consequence of having like finite data and finite modeling capacity. So um, really, the uh, the idea here is like if we had infinite data and infinite model capacity, so if we could sort of let's say you know uh, learn all sorts of uh, functions and we had enough compute and data to sort of satisfy like sort of learn those functions we could reduce the epistemic uncertainty. So it is something which goes to zero uh, if we have, let's say, a perfect model of the world. Um, so it, it is inherently tied to the model or like how we choose to model the world. Or to make it a bit more concrete, let's consider this very simple example where we have uh, uh, these uh, blue colored data, like these blue colored points which form our data set. Uh, and uh, uh, as you can see, uh, the the points themselves are sort of like a noise, they are a noisy version of a sine wave and like they're sort of separated by some distance. Uh, so this noise in the sine wave itself, so this is something which is irreducible, right? So these points themselves are observed with some Gaussian noise, for example. Uh, so they have some uh, aleatoric uncertainty associated, to the, associated with them. But the other thing is you have this model, which is the gray line. So this gray line is like the prediction of our model. And you, as you can see, like there is also some epistemic uncertainty associated, which is like, how wrong is my model? Like if I am, let's say uh, at minus two. So uh, yeah, so it is very important to think about these two distinctions of epistemic and aleatoric uncertainty is because uh, ideally we want to base our decisions on the epistemic uncertainty, which is like the lack of knowledge in our model rather than aleatoric uncertainty, which is something we cannot really reduce. Uh, so, which is why this distinction is important. Now, uh, coming to epistemic uncertainty, uh, focusing a bit more on epistemic uncertainty. So, epistemic uncertainty is uh, really like a consequence of having like there could like uh, many possible functions which could fit your particular data set, right? So, you if you're trying to let's say learn the simple classifier uh, between like squares uh, between triangles and circles, you can have like several or uh, in this case infinitely many uh, functions even within this particular model class, which can separate these two equally well. Uh, so this is what induces epistemic uncertainty. And it also extends to like, if you like want to be a bit more flexible about it, you can have different model classes as well. So instead of just having a linear classifier, you can have these fancy classifiers. Um, so uh, it, it essentially is really a consequence of having like several, like in uh, possibly infinitely many uh, pre uh, predictors which can sort of have the similar performance on your uh, data. So you can also think of it as like sort of a measure of 
the number of functions which can uh, perfectly fit this particular data right uh, now there are several ways in which that people have sort of over the years come to represent what we call this epistemic uncertainty so one of the popular ones is uh, confidence intervals uh, but something more uh, natural for people in machine learning would be uh, something like the variance uh, over the uh, variance of like the posterior distribution over parameters or the entropy of this distribution. So just to like briefly uh, recap these concepts. So this is uh, talking about like the probabilistic uh, perspective on machine learning, where we have some prior over what the parameter, uh, what the values of the parameter are. Uh, then we observe some data, which gives us the likelihood of uh, uh, likelihood of uh, th that particular sample. Uh, and using the prior and the likelihood we get a posterior uh, which is like an updated set of our beliefs over the value of the of the parameter so this uh, parameter is like so this is a very toy example so uh, this particular black uh, uh, curve indicates the posterior uh, so this posterior uh, uh, we can compute things like a variance which is the spread of this posterior so like how many what is the sort of like how uh, loose uh, how loosely spread is my belief over the parameter space, right? Uh, so th that that is a valid measure for uncertainty. And also another measure is the entropy. So uh, which is like a standard information theory uh, uh, quantity. So really like a lot of the work has been focused on these very broad uh, uh, characterizations of the epistemic uncertainty. <clears throat> um, now uh, coming to everyone's favorite uh, models, neural network. Uh, so neural networks, uh, like if you traditionally think of them, they they, they aren't necessarily very, uh, then they aren't necessarily like out of the box able to produce uncertainties for their predictions. Uh, so uh, we really have to take the Bayesian perspective on neural networks. Um, uh, so essentially, what this means is like similar to the example which I uh, which I showed previously. We have a posterior. Uh, we have some posterior over uh, the parameters of my neural network. So if you think about it, you have a set of weights. You just imagine those weights of your neural networks. They are sampled from a certain from certain distribution, and that certain distribution five is. Uh, so let's say your parameters are five. We have a distribution over phi. Uh, and uh, uh, this uh, post and this posterior uh, and this posterior distribution is where the sort of weights are sampled from. Now, uh, to in order to uh, uh, estimate the uncertainty of my neural network, uh, I can try to estimate this posterior. I can try to like find out, let's say, the variance of this posterior, and then use it uh, as my uncertainty estimate. Now, uh, if I uh, like, if I really want to find this posterior. Uh, there are several methods to do that. So one is with relying on uh, local approximation. So I can, let's say, use a variational approximation to my posterior, which can make it easier to model. And then I can learn the posterior, or I can use something like a Laplace approximation, or I can use uh, some sampling-based methods for sampling from this posterior. So for example, MCMC, Hamiltonian Monte Carlo, SGLD, and so on. Uh, so these are several methods for, uh, like broad methods for learning uh, uncertainty estimates. Uh, but in practice, like a lot of these might not be feasible. For example, variational inference can have like poor approximations uh, and MCMC can be like hard to like model multimodal posteriors and so on. So in practice, there are like, uh, there are several approaches, but I just want to like focus on two of them. Uh, so first of the first and like the most popular and powerful one is uh, the deep ensemble. And essentially what this is, it's an instance of like Bayesian model averaging. So you have 
different models of uh, different different models which are which have some stochasticity in them so for example you have a different random initialization and you sort of train these models on your uh, train these models uh, on your uh, data uh, and so uh, this training on the data can also be sort of uh, uh, made more uh, uh, sort of sophisticated. So for example, you can train it only on some fractions, certain fractions of like data, which are uh, for each of these different uh, networks. And at the end, you just uh, combine the predictions of these N models. So for example, if you want the uncertainty estimate, you will take the predictions of these M models and you will just take, uh, you can just output their variance as your epistemic uncertainty. And these work quite well in practice. So with the deep ensembles, I, I should emphasize here, they are like state of the art, uh, like in most uh, settings, but uh, they have this um, uh, drawback of being computationally expensive because you need to have like M uh, different networks. Uh, the other as uh, the other popular uh, baseline of choice which people use is what is called Monte Carlo dropout. Essentially, what this relies on is like a, a Bayesian interpretation of the dropout function. So, dropout uh, for people who are not familiar is essentially uh, a scheme where we uh, drop uh, certain weight connections within the neural network, and this can lead to like uh, better regularization. So we can uh, prevent overfitting. But there was there was also work which interpreted dropout as a form of a Bayesian approximation. And uh, under certain conditions, you can say that uh, networks with dropout would appro approximate uh, certain Bayesian models. And people have used that to also estimate epistemic uncertainty. Um, and essentially what the process is, we have different, we sample different dropout masks uh, and run the network with each of these dropout masks. And at the end, we average these predictions uh, that we get. So um, this um, is also pretty uh, useful baseline because it's very easy to implement. We really already have everything we want. Um, and uh, it works fairly well, I would say, but there are still some drawbacks, which I will come to later. Okay, so before I move ahead, are there any questions like on things I covered so far? I have a question. I have a question. Can you hear me? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so in your, uh, I think, previous slide, you have equation. You have a P of phi given D. What's the phi here? Yeah. It's like a. So parameter. phi are, are parameters. Yeah. Yeah. More the parameter. Yeah. Oh, okay. And D is the data set. Okay. Also, can you give a little bit of short description why this dropout or ensemble things is equivalent to the uh, Bayesian uncertainty or? Um, yeah, so uh, so uh, essentially uh, the ensembles, uh, uh, like so there is a lot of disagreement within the community, but like one very intuitive explanation is you can think of uh, ensembles as uh, different, like, so for example, in a, a Gaussian process, you have like different, uh, you sample from a distribution over functions, and then you estimate like the variance in, the, in that distribution. Uh, similarly, like you can think of deep ensembles as like an initialized, uh, an instantiation of that particular framework where you are explicitly learning all those functions. So let's say you are allowed to fit like k different functions. So if, like intuitively a disagreement among these K functions can tell you like how much more, like how, like what you are missing. So going back to like my previous slides. Uh, so uh, I, I meant like, I, like I mentioned, like it can like the epistemic uncertainty can sort of be seen as a measure of like the number of different functions that you can fit, right? Uh, or like the number of different functions which can fit, fit the data equally well. Uh, so you can think of deep ensembles as just an instantiation of that particular idea where you have 
uh, where you try to fit like eight different networks, all starting from different initializations and sort of seeing the data differently. And then you can uh, combine their predictions. So that will give, like, if you look at the disagreement in the predictions, that should tell you about the epistemic uncertainty. And uh, dropout is also similar, uh, although like uh, you can think of it in a similar way in the sense that if you have different dropout mask, it will, it will give you sort of slightly different functions which can sort of fit the data, we can still fill the, fit the data. Uh, but there has also been work which says like standard dropout without certain conditions is not really Bayesian. So yeah, like the people uh, like there is disagreement in the community of like what to call a, like uh, the actual Bayesian model or not. But I mean, for uh, practical purposes, they do provide uh, useful uncertainty estimates. Okay. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for the question. Uh, uh, any other questions? There is a question in the chat by Chris, but I think it's answered by Yeshua. If if not, okay. like Chris, you can open your mic and ask us. Um, thank you. Um, um, Yoshua answered it, but I have another follow-up question. Is there a difference in the uncertainty estimation when they're using different architectures versus the same architecture? Uh, yes. So like the uncertainty estimates you will get are different, certainly. Uh, so it, it really depends on what uh, it, uh, sort of clarifies what types. Uh, so it really depends on how different the architectures are. Let's say, for example, if you try to model, so, uh, let's say one thing, uh, like one of your models is a neural network and another one of your model is, let's say a linear regression. So both of these will learn very different functions. And in some cases, it can be useful to have these different functions to sort of measure like what different model classes can sort of approximate this, like, or can fit this data well. Uh, so uh, it, like, yeah, so it, you can, in some instances, get better uncertainty estimates if you have like different architectures, but it's, it really, really depends. Thank you. Okay, so yeah, uh, uh, I'll move on. Uh, if you have any questions, please feel free to leave them in the chat and we can get back to them. Um, so yeah, now before I talk about like our method for epistemic uncertainty estimation, I will sort of highlight the importance of uh, uncertainty estimates in a very practical scenario. So we recently had some work on uh, designing uh, antimicrobial peptides. Uh, uh, like uh, using uh, some of our other recent work on GFlowNet. Uh, but uh, generally, so the idea here was uh, that uh, you have a drug, in the drug discovery process, you have like a series of uh, long and uh, different steps, uh, which can be very expensive, which can take a lot of time and so on. And more importantly, from uh, like a modeling perspective, uh, each of them will have a different accuracy and uh, or like different fidelity uh, to be more precise uh, of the true, true property that you're trying to sort of uh, uh, understand or like sort of model. Uh, and uh, they might also have certain other objectives which are added. So for example, in the in silico screening, we might just look at, let's say a very like, for example, if you're uh, trying to find mole uh, molecules which bind to a particular target, in the in silico stage, you can use some very uh, crude, like, docking programs, which are a very rough approximation. They're not exactly the same as, like, let's say, for example, what you would see in an actual experiment. So in the next stage, we will have some uh, actual wet lab experiments uh, where uh, the fidelity of the docking energy would be increased. But then in the uh, there will be, in the next stage, when we go to animal trials, you might have an additional objective of, like, 
the particular mold, uh, molecule which you proposed not being toxic. Uh, so uh, as you can see, like there are this, there is a series of like different steps where in each step you might have something which is more precise uh, or something which is might be contradictory to what you saw before. So it is very important in the initial stages, let's say for example, the in silico screening, which we mo focus more on to generate a diverse set of candidates. So if we uh, like uh, what diverse candidates would ensure is that even if you uh, keep adding uh, different properties or if your uh, if the sort of approximation that you're trying to optimize is not really perfect uh, or it's not it's like very bad you still have like you cover all its modes uh, then you will if you cover all its modes then you will like be at least guaranteed to satisfy that property and in the future like even if your set like keeps getting smaller and smaller and smaller you will you might end up with something which is actually successful um so uh, I, I will not really go a lot into detail about the method here, uh, but uh, just to sort of uh, like lay it out here, we have this uh, 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 very famous uh, uh, loop, uh, uh, inner loop and outer loop. So the inner loop is essentially here where we train our generator. Uh, and uh, so this generator is what uh, uh, something called a GFONET. Uh, which again, I do not have time to cover in like any precise detail, but the, I have put some links to relevant uh, talks and relevant articles, which might be helpful for people who are interested in it. Um, uh, so we train this GFlownet generator using a particular, uh, using this proxy, which is uh, like, which is an approximation of the uh, value of the actual Oracle that we're interested in. Um, <clears throat> uh, and we have a data set of like uh, evaluations of this Oracle. Uh, so uh, the key aspect of the GFlownet is that it can sample objects proportional to their reward rather than like sort of just maximizing them. So this is very important from the diversity perspective, which I mentioned earlier. Uh, uh, but the key aspect here is so in this particular work, we incorporated the uncertainty uh, of this proxy uh, in the reward function for the GFlownet. So rather than using just the value or the prediction of the model. We also incorporate the uncertainty about the uh, about that prediction uh, using something called acquisition functions. So acquisition functions are really just uh, you can think of them as heuristics of how to combine your uh, prediction with your uncertainty estimation. Uh, but uh, yeah, the, like really, it can be re uh, anything. So for example, upper confidence bound, where you just add your uncertainty estimates, and that gives you like a um, let's say what is the maximum potential value I can get from uh, this particular uh, data point. Um, yeah, so the main idea here was that incorporating the information about uncertainty can help us sort of improve the search efficiency because we know where to search because there, what are the places that I'm lacking knowledge uh, and also like knowing the prediction value itself, you can make a, a, a case for like the potential value of that particular point. Uh, yeah, so just to give some results, uh, so uh, the, the metrics here we look at are uh, performance, which is like the property of interest, which in this case was the antimicrobial activity. Uh, and the diversity is really just the, the, the distance between the generated sequences and novelty, which is like how uh, different is the gen are the generated sequences from the known sequences. And as you can see, the GFlownet based method works uh, much better than uh, uh, prior work on all the three metrics. Um, uh, and uh, more relevant uh, to the talk here is that uh, is the effect of uncertainty estimates. So as you can see, without uncertainty estimates, uh, the uh, results are not as impressive. Uh, 
and uncertainty estimates help sort of improve the results quite a lot so they do improve uh, efficiency and like sort of help us achieve state of the art performance uh, okay so now i told you a lot about how these epistemic uncertainty methods are useful and like why they are great and why you should use them now i want to detail certain problems with the current methods so the first one of them is uh, most uh, or like a lot of uncertainty uh, uh, estimation methods currently in use uh, can have poor calibration of outer distribution data now this is very important since in this like drug discovery setting we really want uh, to know our uncertainty on points which are out of distribution because like that those are the points which we really want to acquire if you don't want to acquire something which is already known to us so this is a sort of a very important problem uh, for uh, uh, the drug discovery context so uh, and like this is a very simple example is illustrating it so let's say we have a gaussian process uh, which is fit on this data so the blue points are my initial data set uh, let's say then i add a point at uh, 0.7 in the training data of the uh, gp it is still uh, estimating very low uncertainty in this region even though like it has like see nothing here right so we would expect it to have like fairly high uncertainty estimates in this particular region and the, this other uh, uh, figure that is taken from uh, our paper uh, uh, we uh, uh, see this uh, we see the uh, overestimation and underestimation of the uncertainty estimates so as you can see uh, so this is from an ensemble um, uh, you can see the uncertainty is like many times uh, overestimated underestimated so it's not uh, very accurate on od data uh, and the second one which is also like really important uh, from a more machine learning perspective is uh, the effect of model misspecification so some uh, like something which i didn't really touch upon a lot but uh, as i mentioned earlier like uh, it really like uh, the posterior of your uh, the posterior over parameters uh, it really depends on the prior you have in mind so um if your prior is let's say misspecified so what this means is let's say you are trying to model a like a nonlinear problem with a linear classifier uh your linear classifier would not have enough uh, would not be like, of the main model class but your uncertainty estimates will not account for the fact that you are in the wrong model class so the effect of model misspecification can be uh, very problematic for uncertainty estimation and even like uh, generalization when you train like bayesian models uh and it has been shown to have like suboptimal uh, uh proper uh, suboptimal behavior uh more specifically so if you uh, look at this uh, figure let's say this uh, orange uh, orange surface is uh, uh is the method is, is the function class that you're uh, uh, uh looking at and let's say f uh, f uh this f tilde is the <clears throat> is the sort of uh, a closest a predictor within this model class to our actual predictor which is f star and let's say f hat is the learned predictor so what uh, traditional bayesian methods uh, would measure is this standard is this distance essentially in function space uh, whereas what we really care about is this distance of like the function from the true function uh, so essentially what it misses is this bias uh and like i mentioned earlier there are also some other problems including like uh, approximation poor approximation for variational methods there can be mode mixing issues with mcmc methods and also uh for example uh, hamiltonian monte carlo can be computationally very expensive and uh, not very feasible uh 
um yeah so uh, so now finally coming to i guess the start of the talk is due uh, uh so the main idea here was uh, what if we just try to estimate uh, what if we uh, characterize the uncertainty estimate instead of as let's say the variance over my posterior which misses out on the uh, effect of model uh, misspecification how about i really just reinterpret uh, what uncertainty is as let's say my estimate of how of my generalization error right so if i uh, like if you look at a predictor uh like if the predictor can let's say have an estimate of let's say how far it is from the uh from the like uh from the true value of that particular point um that can be a useful estimate of uncertainty uh because you know okay i'm this much far i need to sort of uh, go there and like uh, see if i'm uh, really accurate there and a higher uncertainty would also indicate like poor approximation quality so uh, we really felt this might be a good uh, fit for uh, situations with like sequence uh, si situations involving sequential decision making um uh, and roughly the idea is we have a main predictor this is our standard uh, machine learning method so it can be a regressor classifier whatever uh, and we augment it with uh, this uh, additional error predictor which will try to predict this out of distribution error for this for uh, for the data points now it is key to note that this error predictor is also trained on out of distribution points which is why it is sort of able to generalize out of distribution otherwise like if we just train it on points already on the training data you do not you cannot expect it to generalize out of distribution just looking at everything inside the training data and sort of uh, expecting it to predict like the loss out of distribution accurately um and i will get to how like what is needed to actually achieve this um yeah so uh, let's get started so before moving ahead we sort of lay out our definition for uh what for like what this uncertainty really is uh, in like uh, mathematical terms so uh, we refer to the total uncertainty as the loss of our predictor so uh <clears throat> like the uh, the total uncertainty is essentially just the uh loss that we have uh, for a particular predictor uh, uh the next uh, thing is the aleatoric uncertainty so what we define as aleatoric uncertainty is the error uh made by the base optimal predictor so base optimal predictor you can just uh, think about it as uh the predictor which has infinite compute and infinite data so given infinite data and infinite compute uh if i am able to sort of learn a predictor uh what is the error that predictor will make so essentially it's just like the noise in the environment so yeah so the base optimal so the aleatoric uncertainty is the uh, total uncertainty of uh, base optimal predictor um the epistemic uncertainty then we define it as the reducible part of the loss so uh if i have a total uncertainty and i take away the aleatoric uncertainty out of it uh whatever is left is my epistemic uncertainty so it is essentially the part of the uncertainty which i which i can actually reduce by uh, looking at more data and let's say having more capacity um uh, so we have uh, in the paper we have this um uh a proposition which uh, talks about how this uh, particular situation is valid in a uh, case of regression uh we also have a proof of how this is valid in the case of classification settings where you have like a negative law likelihood loss and here it is a mean squared error loss but really uh, you can think of it as uh when we characterize our epistemic uncertainty in terms of the uh, like in terms of the reducible part of the loss uh it really models this uh uh, uh this particular quantity which i alluded to earlier 
uh, of uh, the error between uh, of really like the distance between your uh, uh, predictor learned predictor and your uh, true predictor true underlying uh, or like true underlying function sorry um, yeah so now that i have a definition of uh, the uncertainty uh, i can uh, like i can sort of come up with an algorithm to estimate it right so uh, uh, so really like it is a very uh, simple to understand algorithm. So we uh, have uh, some normal machine learning, right? So we first have our data set. Uh, we have some out of distribution sample uh, 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 for X and Y. Uh, I will get to like how we get these out of distribution samples uh, a bit uh, after this slide. Uh, but let's say we have some out of distribution examples and we have some training examples. Uh, and we sort of have these uh, predictors. Uh, so uh, we first will uh, do standard machine learning. We fit uh, our predictor on our data set. So we'll only fit it on the training data set, not on the out of sample predictions. Uh, then within in our, um, uh, we'll also fit features in 5D. So I will come to these features uh, uh, again a bit later. Uh, but uh, then we use the out of uh, sample distribution. Uh, we take this out of sample uh, data set, which we have, uh, and I will evaluate the error of my predictor on all these out of sample points. So this will give me an sort of expanded data set DE. And I will also evaluate uh, my function at the in distribution data points so that we can, we also know about what the in distribution uh, error is. And I will simply fit uh, an estimator E on the total uh on this combined data set so this estimator will learn how to predict the error now uh one thing which i assume here is we have an estimator of aleatoric uncertainty now this estimator you can uh it is also possible to estimate it from data if you have access to the oracle uh but for now let's just assume that we have like a trained estimator or like i know what the aleatoric uncertainty is so i can just subtract it so uh basically for the getting the epistemic uncertainty at any point x all I really need to do is I uh, estimate the error using my um, uh, error predictor and I uh, remove the aleatoric uncertainty from it. And this will give me the epistemic uncertainty. So it, it really is like a very straightforward procedure uh, if you uh, look at it. Um, now, uh, uh, coming to the like very uh, obvious question of like, how do we deal with out of distribution points? So like I mentioned earlier, this is very, um, <clears throat> uh like this method was really focused on like interactive like sequential decision making settings so in sequential decision making settings that i talked about earlier you have this loop where you sort of uh, uh generate new data and then you sort of get uh <clears throat> then you sort of observe the actual value of that data and then you incorporate it in your data set and so on so there are two points here uh, one is uh, before we sort of incorporate the data in my policy, which uh, is basically my function, uh, that point is out of distribution, right? Like before my predictor is trained on that particular data point, that point is out of distribution for my uh, predictor. And once I have trained my predictor with it, it becomes in distribution. So really for each, uh, for each data point, I can have two training examples for my uncertainty estimator. Uh, one would be where it was out of sample and one where is one is where it was in sample, right? So uh, before we train the main predictor on it and after we train the main predictor on it, there will be two points uh, which we can sort of use as clues for the error estimator. So if I give my error estimator um, uh, a point before the data set, uh, before uh, it is trained on the main predictor, 
uh, and tell it that okay yeah, this has not yet been seen by the main predictor you can and i also give it like after it has been trained with the main predictor you can expect your uh, error predictor to get some clues of like what out of distribution point looks like and what in distribution points look like um so that is one of really like the key aspect which makes uh duke work and work well in uh sequential settings uh now uh but if you think about it like it, it introduces a, a lot of non-stationarity right so if you think about it uh, if i'm just estimating uh if i'm learning a predictor to estimate the loss of a model uh it can't be very accurate because the loss of the predictor keeps going down right so the loss of the predictor keeps changing uh the loss of the uh, like as i see more and more data points like the my loss at each data point uh, in my state space will change and it might go lower uh, we expect it to go lower or it can also go higher uh but like it's really uh, uh, induces this non stationarity uh so to deal with this non stationarity we propose using what we call stationary stationarizing features so stationarizing features are essentially just uh features which can help uh the error which can help give the error predictor some clues on uh, estimating the true uncertainty <clears throat> so okay consider for example uh this uh data set uh, called two moons so we have this uh data points uh, highlighted in purple right now uh if i let's say have an estimator of uh if i have like say a density estimator fit on this data set it would look something like this let's say uh now uh if you look at this uh density estimate uh you you can uh, sort of learn a lot about uh, a particular point uh, and what its generalization error might be looking at the density estimate so for example if i look at the density estimate uh, on the data set like so let's say in this one of these yellow regions uh my density estimates will be very uh, density estimator will have like a very high output uh what this will indicate to me is that the uh, uh the point is in distribution it will tell me something about the distribution of data that i've seen uh, or like the data set that i've seen and this new point of interest uh and this distance can tell me a lot about um uh, how what my generalization error should be so i would expect a higher generalization for uh like a higher density or oh, sorry uh, for a lower density with for a point which has like which is further away from the training data uh so the density can be a useful cue a uh, clue uh, and the next one is variance so uh, i mentioned earlier that you know the posterior uh, variance is not a, a sufficient proxy for epistemic uncertainty but it is still a good proxy is what i want to highlight here is if you look at the uncertainty estimates so uh, in this particular figure uh, the yellow part is essentially the uncertainty estimate from a gaussian process uh, which is a bayesian model uh, non parametric model and if you look at it uh, except for the data set the variance everywhere else is quite high so uh, if i don't have access to let's say a density estimator if i have a variance estimator uh, or uh, let's say for example i can get this variance even from mc dropout uh, which won't be a good uh, like a particularly uh, great uh, 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 variance estimate but it will still be useful uh so yeah uh, these features can give me clues and in fact we can use any estimate to like uh, pre any previous work let's say uh, called uh, from like gaussian processes and like my mc dropout uh, to various other methods that people have proposed we can in fact use those as input to our error predictor and improve like the quality of uncertainty estimates 
So it is, this is like, uh, you can sort of guarantee it to be better than like any other method uh, of interest and be more accurate about the, like the quantity that we really care about of this uh, epistemic uh, uncertainty. Now, uh, just to like uh, briefly share some results that we have, these are already in the paper, uh, which you can refer to. So one of our experiments focused on uh, estimating the uncertainty over uh, like uh, combinations of drugs. Uh, and I think like I, I, like I can't do a better job than Paul did last week at the at his MP2 talk on this particular topic. So please feel free to check it out. But uh, yeah, so but really like what we observe is that uh, we get extremely uh, strong uncertainty estimates from Duke uh, over existing methods. Uh, the next task, which might be more familiar to people in machine learning, which is that of identifying out of distribution inputs. So let's say I have a predictor which is trained on uh, the CIFAR 10 data set um, uh, and I want to use it to uh, sort of uh, 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 identify uh, if I give it an input from some other data set SVHN which is out of distribution. So uh, I guess the rough idea here is uh, we want to be, we want to know when the model does not know, right? So if the, if my, if the model sees something which is uh, out of distribution, it should predict a high uncertainty estimate, which should tell us that, okay, maybe we should not rely on the uh, prediction of the model. Um, and uh, so this is a very standard setup that people have proposed. So we train on uh, these uh, CIFAR 10 images, which is like planes and cars and so on. And then we try to test it on SVHN, which is really images of like house numbers and so on. And what we expect is the like the uncertainty on this out of distribution part should be higher. So we should be able to accurately distinguish between the points that we've seen and the points that we've not seen. And here we see like uh, Duke uh, outperforms all the previous methods um, uh, in terms of these two metrics. So just to uh, talk a bit more about these two metrics. So this is the Spearman rank correlation. So essentially how well are my uncertainty estimates correlated to the actual generalization error of my predictor. And the AUROC is like a standard uh, metric which people use for, uh, so let's say uh, if I am making uh, the prediction of uh, higher uncertainty prediction on a particular example uh, uh, and sort of classifying it as out of distribution. So what is the area uh, like uh, AUC for that particular classification curve? Uh, next and more interesting uh, from like the uh, sequential model optimization view is our results on sequential model optimization. So this is one of the simple examples uh, that I chose from the paper, but there are several other examples. So as you can see, this function has like a lot of um, uh, a lot of uh, like uh, uh, maxima. Uh, so the goal here is we want to find the maximum point, which would be at like 1.8. Um, so uh, 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 we use uh, the standard framework of Bayesian optimization, and we want to find this maximum point. Um, so, like, really, so we really just took the dupe uncertainty estimates and fed it to like a standard, uh, and like sort of replaced it, uh, replaced the Gaussian process in like a standard uh, BO uh, framework, uh, and it like works extremely well. Uh, so, I mean, this is a very simple toy example, but we have results on like some more complicated examples as well. Uh, and uh, it, it is sort of the only method which can actually reach the maximum. Uh, the next uh, one, and I guess uh, I didn't really touch a lot on this, but uh, uh, reinforcement learning can benefit a lot from useful uncertainty estimates. So uh, it can uh, help us uh, do efficient exploration. Uh, so if we have uncertainty in the parameters of our uh, uh, uncertainty over the parameters of our, let's say, value function or for a policy, we can use that 
as a sort of signal for guiding exploration. So uh, in this particular set of experiments, we use the uncertainty estimates as the exploration bonus. So essentially, if, uh, 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 if a particular uh, if if our agent visits a particular state, which is it's which is sort of is new to or it's uncertain about, then it gets this bonus, which is equal to like our uncertainty estimate. And what we observe is that it it works quite well uh, on the task that we tested, um, and it uh, actually achieves the lowest regret, uh, it, even better than like uh, uh, sort of have methods which have been uh, designed for exploration in reinforcement learning. So. Uh, yeah, I, I think uh, just to like give a brief conclusion to uh, the all that I've discussed before. So epistemic uncertainty is a powerful signal. Uh, and I guess this is not something which we discovered. Uh, it's like sort of a known thing. But what is uh, more interesting is if we can interpret the uncertainty estimates as like an estimate of generalization error, uh, it can help us mitigate the issues that uh, existing methods can have uh, in terms of, uh, for example, model misspecification. Um, but uh, just to highlight uh, one important aspect is that like uh, while sort of dupe uh, seemed very simple in like principle and in explanation, like uh, instrumenting it in uh, an active learning setting can be somewhat challenging in terms of compute and uh, also like complexity of actually implementing it within your existing framework. Um, but uh, it, I think there are uh, there is lots of potential for future work to like make it more efficient. We can sort of combine a lot of the features that we learn, stationary features with the main predictor and so on. Uh, but yeah, that is like that is there's a lot of potential for future work there. And another uh, also very important aspect is the biological validation, like uh, actual wet lab uh, validations for some of the results that we presented because. I mean, it's easy for like uh, as machine learning scientists to claim that okay, this method should work and so on. But unless we have some actual experimental validation, it is still something like uh, which we need to claim that. Um, yeah, uh, so that's it. I just want to thank all of my co-authors uh, and like uh, lots of groups at Mila who have been instrumental in discussions relating to both of these projects that I discussed today, and also to uh, people who have supported uh, the research financially. Yeah, and now I'm open to questions. Uh... Thank you much for the, for the excellent presentation. Um, yeah, also for people who haven't been following the chat, there has been already some interesting conversation going on there. So please take a look. Um, for question, I'm, I can start with the first one. So you, you use a kind of a definition of auto distribution generalization that mm -hmm. Um, I would say for me is a is a bit incomplete, incomplete in the sense that, uh, for example, if you take proteins or like peptides or, or molecules, you cannot just mm -hmm. define outer distribution as what's coming in the next batch of experiments, right? Because like this next batch of experiments might have some molecular peptides that are very similar to the ones that you have in your training set, and some that are very far from that training set. So um, yeah, just want to to have your thought on. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. So, uh, just to be clear, like we, so we don't necessarily mean that like the next batch has to necessarily be like out of distribution, very far from the training set, and so on. Uh, so, really, the point here is when when we sort of uh, are in these acquisition setting, the next even like even though the next batch might have some of the examples which are very similar to things that we have already seen, it will have some examples which can be very different from what we have seen before. And you can use, rely on like those examples to sort of build like even if it's a small if it, it's some information 
about out of distribution points. So really the goal is here is that we want to look at these uh, 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 batches that we acquire. And from these batches, we can um, sort of infer something about like the distribution that we do not already know. And like what the loss might be on these out of distribution points, which or like what the error our predictor might make on points which are like very far away. And that should give us a useful signal to uh, like be able to predict it like and maybe extrapolate it. Uh, outside of the training distribution. Like this. Maybe I can add another point, which is that you have to remember that the aleatoric, uh, sorry, the epistemic uncertainty prediction that we're doing with dupe is conditioned on the input. So depending on say the molecule, it could predict a different level of uncertainty. Right? So the, the easy molecules that look like the ones you've seen before, um, you know, it's gonna learn that they look like the things I've seen before. So I don't expect a lot of error. The things that are very new, they're far from things you've learned before, is going to predict there's going to high level of error. So these two things are not like hurting, you know, there's no approximation that is being violated here by having a mix of easy and hard out of sample examples or, you know, far out of distribution versus close to the original distribution. Thank you, Yashua, for the presentation. Thank you much. Um, one other point that I, I'd like to bring here is the number of What's actually the, is, is there any number of uh, how old the sample that you need to see to better estimate the uh, epistemic uncertainty? Um, um, yeah, that's a, that's a good question. So I, I, we don't really have any like sample complexity sort of bounds on like how many samples out of distribution do I need to see in order to sort of be able to generalize uh, well out of distribution. So yeah, we don't have uh, any, like at least theoretically any such results, but uh, more practically, I think uh, like um, it, it really depends also from like uh, the domain to domain. So in certain, for example, toy domains of sequential model optimization, you might be okay if you, even if you see like, let's say only uh, a fraction, let's say 0.1% or uh, 0.1%, oh, sorry, 1% of the uh, examples that you've acquired are uh, out of distribution. Um, but yeah, I, I don't really, unfortunately, I don't have any uh, concrete answer to that question. Like it really depends a lot. Okay, thank you. Um, any more questions? That's, that's all for me. Um, so, okay, there was a question in the chat uh, for the last figure. Um, uh, for MC dropout DQN uh, being worse, then uh, DQN plus epsilon VD. Um, yeah, so uh, actually like, yeah, that's a very good question. So uh, we, we were also initially somewhat surprised by uh, like the order of the regret of these methods and like the sort of best explanation that we have so far, we haven't probed into it for uh, a lot, but uh, the best explanation we have so far is that um, this, uh, like, uh, like the MC dropout. So, uh, the epsilon greedy DQN, uh, is sort of guaranteed to uh, explore like all parts of the state space because you will make the epsilon, uh, uh, you will take like random actions, uh, with the probability epsilon. Uh, whereas in MC, in the MC dropout DQN, you really just rely on this uncertainty or, or, or the bonus of this uncertainty from MC dropout. Uh, so it is not guaranteed to sort of explore your entire state space. Um, so uh, we believe that that might that might be what is causing this uh, parent discrepancy. 
does that answer your question okay thank you oh, i see there is also a question like there is a lot of discussion on uh, uh, uncertainty like uh, benchmarks and so on so uh, like the just to point out uh, like there is a, a like sort of large scale effort for like studying the effect of like uncertainty estimates calibration called uncertainty baselines uh released by google and uh, the jaren gals group at uh, oxford uh which might be of interest uh, to people looking for like a more comprehensive empirical evaluation uh but the only sort of shortcoming is the uncertainty baseline as of now focuses only on like uh sort of static data set settings so for example you have a data, like so they for example have experiments similar to those of our uh like these cfar and svhn experiments so yeah it is uh, like an excellent benchmark but it doesn't cover like sequential settings cool um thank you so much much for the uh, for answering all those questions and for the great presentation ah, there is one question sorry uh, go ahead please. yeah uh, i just had one quick question so apart from the variational approximation method uh, the mc dropout the rest of the nn based method that you have tried are those scalable to large data sets um yes so actually there has been a like bunch of recent work on uh, like sort of single pass uh, methods for uncertainty estimation so for example these uh, data sets like due and uh, sorry these methods like due and duq uh, they rely on like a single forward pass of a neural network uh, to estimate uncertainty so it's like much cheaper uh, than uh, running let's say an ensemble or mc even mc dropout uh so they tend to scale fairly well i've seen experiments of people running them on things like imagenet and so on uh so yeah like uh, there are definitely alternatives which uh work quite well on a large scale and just to be clear like even we can even uh, instrument do to work on them but uh, my comment at the end was just that uh it, it is the, since we have these different aspects to take care of like uh, having different features so we have to train different networks with different loss functions for example uh, so it's a bit of uh, like it's not very trivial to integrate it in let's say something which you might have already existing compared to other methods i mean you chose the gp as a baseline for in the bayesian optimization framework which yes. definitely it's not scalable because it's cubic in terms of uh yeah so we uh, complexity yeah. so that's why i was wondering yeah, so, there's been recent literature on conditional neural processes in which they combine gps in a neural network framework yeah which is uh, i think linearly scalable but then i think the rest of the uh, you know deep learning methods are definitely very interesting thanks thanks a lot yeah yeah thank you for the question okay great um so i think we can stop here there's any there's no more question uh thank you again much for the for the great presentation and thank you all for, for attending this this talk um there is a link to our slack channel to to join uh there in in, in the chat please consider joining if you want to have more questions for for much please on the slack channel and we'll be happy to to answer those um and uh, if nothing more to discuss happy to see everyone next week where we're talking about graph neural network in trade discovery presented by Dom Meaning Bernie. Thank you everyone and have a good day.